Well, the Blues Brothers was released 43 years ago today. One of the most popular musical comedies and best films to come from Saturday Night Live. And it introduced a whole new audience to the likes of the one and only Aretha Franklin. How can you not feel good after hearing that? How can you not cast your mind back to that amazing scene of Aretha and cast singing and dancing in that diner scene, utterly infectious? I don't know whether you're familiar with the uh, movie uh, uh, Ella Henry, but I absolutely loved it when it came out. Lots of joy, lots of joy yeah. all around, I think, is the way we describe it. Yeah. Now, uh, someone's just texted, uh, here we are sitting on the car waiting patiently for the polyamory story 30 minutes later we're poly and we're very chuffed to see the subject coming to light in the public sphere so yeah we're going to be talking about uh, polyamory and threesomes uh in light of a property dispute uh in about a five ten minutes time stay with us here on the panel uh in the international very interesting to hear what uh ella and stephen have to say on that uh but to this dairy owners have presented a petition to parliament this afternoon calling on the government to do more to crack down on crime and now among those who attended was the father of Janak Patel, an Auckland dairy worker who was stabbed to death last year. The petition which was launched after Patel's death has nearly 35,000 signatures, pretty significant and with us is Sonny Koshal, the chairman of the Dairy and Business Owners Group. Sonny, nice to have you on the panel today. Good afternoon. How was the turnout? Uh, it, it was pretty good. Uh, uh, you know, it was very productive, as we could see. Uh, the uh, number of uh, MPs uh, from different parties, uh, from the National Party, there were quite a, a large contingent uh, of the senior MPs. And then from uh, the government, we had Minister uh, Jenny Anderson uh, from the ex-party, uh, uh, David Seymour. Uh, and, you know, there was very good turnout. And we were very pleased um, uh, that we could... Uh, submit uh, the uh, um, petition and also the manifesto uh, to all these people uh, in front of the media. And this was a very crucial matter. Uh, as you know, we have no choice left, but, uh, but we had to travel all the way to Wellington after closing our shops for the day. Sonny, I don't think anyone would be particularly surprised uh, to to know that. I mean, dairies in particular really slammed. I mean, I've got a bus route and I take half an hour to get to work and it just seems to be every third dairy, you know, has uh, has the wood up, the glass smashed. It must be, dairy owners must feel under real pressure, particularly around their personal safety. You're right. You know, we are being burgled and robbed 18 times a day and ram raided every 10 hours. It's, it's that serious. So, uh, you know, doing uh, a business in New Zealand has anyway become uh, difficult uh, after COVID, but the spite of crime has made even more difficult. As you know, there was a recent survey. Now, 95% Kiwis do not feel safe in New Zealand. Okay, before we go to our panel, what do you want? Well, uh, we uh, a is we submitted uh, the uh, uh, the petition uh, that carried uh, over forty thousand signatures. Wait, uh, there were two uh, petitions. One was from the dairy owners, uh, thirty-four thousand two hundred, and from the Chinese community, five thousand eight hundred. So, uh, uh, in that one, uh, we urge the government to uh, urgently act on the retail crime emergency. Uh, which is a crisis, and the government has been denying 
and also we uh, submitted the uh, manifesto uh, and uh, and manifesto um, there were uh, the points that we were asking giving kiwis the ability to defend ourselves our property and our community and also uh, actions on the real consequences when people break the law regardless of age uh, and also then the begging and homeless uh, need to be uh, urgently looked at and responding to the crime and causes of crime okay yeah pretty big issue quite complex issue but stay there i have i, I want to put a, a fairly concrete idea to you very soon sunny but i want to hear from our uh, panelists and what their opinions and viewpoints are on this also ella I wish that I could magically come up with some solution because it must be just so awful. And and I'm reminded that only a couple of years ago, so many communities around the country learned the real value of having our local dairies open, you know, being able to at least go and get food when everything else was shut down. It was an incredibly stressful time. And I would love to be able to say, hey, here's a solution I don't have. I hope we can find one because this is just – it. It must be so unbearably stressful to be working the kind of hours they do and living it with the kind of fear that they do. So I send a lot of aroha to uh, our community who are dairy owners. Stay there, Sunny. Uh, Stephen Franks. Oh, you probably expect uh, this is a on a cracked record on this because the facts are there. The 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 uh, there are solutions. They've been adopted by many societies. New Zealand was one of the safest in the world only 60 years ago. We had an average of two murders per year for 40 years, and that included the time when all the traumatised people came back from the First and Second World Wars. And it's what happens when you, when the fundamental thing that keeps people from committing crime is a sense of what you get away with, what, what gets what is the real law around here? Not what people say the law is, but what you get punished for. And we lost control. Um, there isn't any way that the police, bollards, fog cannons, all that sort of stuff can't stop this. It has to come from the really expensive, I say expensive because there has to be a period of intense um, policing and sanctioning, that, that really intensive um, locking up people who cause these things? You know, they okay. they cut crime by forty percent with three strikes in California, and this this government abolished three strikes here, but only after the judges in the Supreme Court, safe in their leafy suburbs, effectively said, "Well, we're not going to enforce yeah, it anyway." Yeah, we'll come back to three strikes. We might even return to it tomorrow, actually, and, uh, uh, because I've been looking uh, pretty closely at the crime stats this afternoon, uh, and um, it's quite a complicated picture, whichever way you cut it. But I, so to this and to that. Sonny, I want to give you a concrete solution that you could enact or you could possibly adopt very, very soon. Um, five years ago, the Corfi Food Centre, Hamilton, decided to stop selling cigarettes. No pouches, no tailor no vapes. They haven't been ram raided. So what about this, um, Sonny, just as an option? What about installing cigarette vending machines, for example, by the door? Yeah, that's a very good suggestion. But also, uh, I can tell you, uh, because I'm representing those dairies and businesses across New Zealand, uh, the cigarettes is is not the problem. You know, cigarettes are not attracting crime. It's the cost of the cigarettes. It's the value which has 
been uh, yeah, you know raised right. year after year. You know, uh, and today, eighty-five percent of uh, cigarette uh, packs value uh, is the taxes. So it's a $2.2 billion market and $2 billion are going to the to the government. Uh, you know, there should not be any excuses. I mean, uh, you know, youth crime, for example, we have been talking. See, youth crime is not the fault of Captain Cook. You know, Kiwis went through two world wars, the Great Depression and the 1980s reform without smashing up a corner dairy. No, but I'm saying to you that uh, here you had this food centre, no ra- no ram raids in five years where the um, centres around them have. Uh, that point, cigarettes being 30 bucks a pack, just put them in vending machines by the door. There you go. There's another arsenal in your toolbox there, Sonny. Yeah, it's a good one. But, you know, at the same time, now the smoke-free uh, uh, legislation which is coming up, so not every dairy uh, would be able to sell the cigarettes. So from 6,000, the government is slashing to 600 outlets. Mm. It's just so that's going to be uh, terrible, uh, uh, you know, as to the crime is concerned, because now there would be more focused crime on those 600 uh, uh, stores mm. and, and uh, they would be on the gunpoint every day. I just, I just, you know, like Steve and like Ella, we we feel for you. We feel for your sector, Sonny. And we, as Ella rightly says, imagine going to work day by day by day, not only worrying about a small business, but actually worrying about your personal safety. From those you talk to, dairy owners, how's their how's their how's their mental health? It's 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 taken toll almost on everyone. Because, you know, when they leave uh, uh, their uh, family going to work, they do not know what is uh, uh, in store for them. Uh, it's, it's quite hard. And, and if they would be able to come back. And it's not just with the dairy owners. It's with everyone nowadays. You know, for example, day before, there was an incident uh, uh, in Takapuna. Uh, so, you know, the people were dining uh, in a restaurant. And suddenly this ex-building uh, guy who enters and then started uh, uh, injuring them. them. So where are you safe? You know, you, you cannot go even for a walk to your park. So the problem, you know, this is not just a police matter, but a whole of government one. So the soft on crime approach and the catch and release policy have created a permissive environment where there are very little consequences for offenders. Okay, uh, so you know, nice This is what responsibility. Very nice to have you on. The, oh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, as I said, we may return to that uh, story. Uh, later in the week on the panel. Uh, Stephen Franks and Ella Henry with me this afternoon. Uh, and wonderful to have your company. It's 15 away from five. A polyamorous thruples $2 million property dispute has raised questions on how similar cases might be handled in the future. The decision relates to a property dispute between a man and two women who live at a Kumu property for 15 years. The Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that a polyamorous relationship could be broken into twosomes and considered by the family court in a property relationship dispute. The man and woman were married and the second woman was considered as being in a de facto relationship with either of them. With us is property law specialist Michael Foley. Kia ora, Michael. Kia ora. Have you ever come across a case like this before? Well, it's obviously very unique. Uh, polyamorous relationships are not that common, and um, that may be a blessing in disguise because 
the law has, um, with respect, has become a little bit clouded as to how they can now be dealt with. Historically, these sort of relationships would have been dealt with in terms of equitable remedies, um, trusts and what have you. They wouldn't have qualified to be uh, dealt with under the Property Relationships Act, which is an act based upon, in simple terms, based upon couples sharing their lives and um, then dividing, dividing up their assets if they've been in a qualifying relationship for three years, dividing them on an equal basis. And um, so that act did a, did a blessing in that it took away the lottery of what might happen in terms of equity as to who had contributed what to a relationship and said, well, in a relationship between a couple, it's quite simple, it's 50-50 on the mm. Main assets after three year qualification period. The um, law then got sort of um, not specifically, but inadvertently, maybe wrong there, inadvertently amended around about 2001 or so when Parliament um, varied the Act to allow for there to be, in my words, contemporaneous relationships um, in that three people could exist and that um, Party A could have a relationship with Party B, whether that was marriage or de facto, and also a relationship A between C. Also, that could be de facto. And the courts have specifically accepted that that, uh, interpreted whether literally or not, uh, enables what's commonly referred to as a V relationship, a being at the top of the V and B and C right. being at each end of the V, uh, to exist in terms of getting um, decisions under the Property Relationships Act. What, what happened here? Yeah. If I just what yeah, happened here is that um, A and B and C, in this case, literally formed a a tripartite arrangement. Uh, but given by virtue of their own evidence, it wasn't determined that's what they did. They actually did move in together, shared the same bed, shared the same property, and that has been now found by the Supreme Court to be able to be a qualifying relationship to be determined um, as to who gets what in the in the family court. The Supreme Court hasn't actually decided the case, it's just simply said it is available for that sort of a situation to be determined in the family court. Prior to that, it would not have it would not have qualified to be determined there. Goodness gracious, what a situation and what a case! Uh, talking uh, a polyam- polyamorous throuple's two million dollar property dispute has raised questions on how similar cases might be handled. If you've just tuned in, and again, if you are polyamorous. Uh, please get in touch and we'll come to you tomorrow. Text me at 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Ella Henry. Well, I think this is part of a reflection of what's going on around the world, which is recognising that relationships can take multiple different forms, um, include multiple different variations of people and love, and uh, I guess it reinforces the idea in my mind that love finds a way no matter what hurdles are put in its way. I I mean, I think it's a really interesting case of... uh, that diversity. Stay there, Michael. Stephen Franks. 
Now, I was on the select committee that did the law change in 2001-2002, and right. there wasn't very much that was inadvertent. Uh, the committee actually had a lot of concerns about what was happening. Uh, before we wrote our final report, um, we had our committee chair, a good chair, um, Tim Barnett, had gone to the minister to say, this is going to cause a lot of um, unintended consequences, but she was a very rigid person and just told the Labour MPs that they had to be whipped on it and they weren't allowed to agree on a lot of the changes and one of them was to avoid some of these consequences because I think if I was in a polyamorous relationship I wouldn't want this act to apply. I'd much prefer that we could uh, be rely on, on the arrangements we, we reached or the courts deciding on who gets what according to contribution but the problem with this is it's sort of one size fits all being okay. laid across a relationship where they, when they enter it anyway they're probably not even thinking of, of how the property might disappear What do you make of that Michael? Michael Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, what do you I've make got, of what Stephen said? I, I've got two concerns basically and it's a good um, evidence of what the history was but it, it didn't specifically address polyamorous relationships and that's quite obvious, but it didn't. Um, but uh, historically, the law has moved with social changes, and the law adapts to that. And and sometimes the law is ahead of any statutory provisions. And that's, I think, simply the case that we finished up with here. The um, Some of the judges in the sequence of the events here did make the observation that this was better left to Parliament to change, um, well, that may or may not be necessary now because the Supreme Court is the last word on the matter and the majority did hold that a polyamorous relationship can qualify. Uh, the second thing I'm concerned about is the certainty that the public and senior lawyers advising the public can take out of these situations um, because you're going to have two senior lawyers saying, well, I think this case qualifies, or another one saying, well, actually, I don't think it does when we look at the facts. And so it's going to cost right. a lot of money to Gosh. find out the answers to that. It's such a complex case, isn't it? Thank you so much yeah. for explaining it to us, Michael Kiara. That's Michael Bonner there, a property law specialist on when you're in a polyamorous relationship. Uh, please get in touch. Email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. Now, Stephen Franks, um, uh, just a kind fact check here. You, you said you think you had an average of two murders per year for 60 years. I've got up the um, police stats, and that is just... Incorrect. You've got 1932, 10 murders, 33, 14, 34, 10. Um, no, you, you, you're probably looking at homicides. Uh, the, the I think the average re- over Recorded the, murders. I'm looking at murders. Yeah, well, uh, do they have homicide there as a, as a title? No. no. Okay. 24 and 86, clearly uh, that was wrong. You no, said, no, I said two it, murders per year. It was from 1920 to 1960. That was an extraordinary period. And and in that period, there were six homicides. The average over that period was six homicides a year, um, of, of which two were murder. Remember, murder was a capital, and and so people were executed if they were a murderer. All right. Well, I'm looking at the murders here, and uh, what you said to me was was wrong. Um, but um, yeah, indeed. Crime in, New, Crime in New Zealand published in 1967 as the authority on this, and I'm very happy to dig right. it out for you. Seven away from five. The panel. It's National Volunteer Week, and 
Thanks to their volunteers. They want to give a big thanks. Mercy Hospital has had them sashay down the runway. A fashion show was held for their 520 volunteers to thank them for their service who modelled second-hand clothes from the new Mercy Hospice retail shop in Ellerslie. So to tell us more, we have Debbie Stevens, Volunteer Coordinator for Patient Care Services from Mercy Hospice. Debbie, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Wallace. It's a pleasure because it's been it's been the theme really this week, and that is um, the million New Zealanders that volunteer uh, give their service for nothing. What does volunteering look like at Mercy Hospital? Uh, well, we, we're a hospice. We're not a hospital. Um, two different places. Um, we have so many different roles that our volunteers can fill. Uh, first of all, we have our retail stores, and uh, we have eight of those across Auckland. Um, our retail volunteers uh, work on three-hour shifts, and uh, some of our stores are open seven days a week, so you can imagine how many volunteers it takes to actually fill those spaces. But I look after patient care services uh, with the volunteers that we have at hospice, and um, they have lots of different roles. We have a drinks trolley that goes around our inpatient unit every, uh, well, twice a day, actually, uh, offering both uh, alcoholic and soft drinks to our patients and their whanau. Uh, We have morning tea and afternoon trolleys that also... um, Uh, in our IPU, our inpatient unit. But we also have volunteer drivers that uh, take our community patients Mm. to various services. Uh, We have compassionate carers that will sit with patients if they don't have any family support or, in fact, if their carers need some respite themselves and uh, just need to go to the supermarket or or just have some time to themselves. Integral Uh, part, aren't they? Integral part of the whole uh, hospice uh, setup. Ella Henry. Oh, look... Oh, sorry, no, finish your thought, and I'll uh, chime in. Debbie. I was, I was just going to say, we couldn't operate without our volunteers. All oh, right, Ella. You know, I agree. I, I, I mean, we may disagree about uh, across political spectrums, but the reality is that New Zealand is, as a, a nation, founded on a high level of egalitarianism and volunteerism. And I absolutely tip my hat to the people who give their time selflessly across multiple organisations. And in this case, to the nurses who gave up their time to celebrate the volunteers in their community. You know, it makes me feel... it. it, it, it there's a never-ending source of pride for me in the fact that that is actually part and parcel of who and what we are as a nation. Stephen? It's lovely. I, I was amazed at how how big, 350 patients at any one time, and just the the mm. culture that must be needed to keep people from burning out when you've got such a throughput of, of, of people who, who surrounded by sad family. Where do most of the volunteers... What prompts them? Are they mostly unrelated, or is it after someone's had a, had a relative go through? How does it? How do? How do they volunteer? They can actually go onto our website um, and uh, support us that way and apply to be a volunteer. But the vast majority of people that do volunteer for us have had somebody that has uh, they've known has been looked after by Mercy Hospice or they've, they've got a friend who knows somebody who's been looked after by Mercy Hospice. Um, and 
everybody that seems to volunteer for us, they're just the most wonderful people. They're very, very compassionate people. Very good, Debbie. Look, keep up that um, extraordinary work uh, and I appreciate your time. I forgot to mention the fashion show as well, so that was part of it as well, wasn't it? It was indeed. We actually, uh, we have an event twice a year for our volunteers to say thank you very much and uh, we had one on Sunday and some of our staff members from right across Mercy Hospice departments gave up their time on Sunday. We dressed them in outfits from one of our stores and they actually walked the runway and, uh, and gave our volunteers a fabulous day. Oh, good on you. Hey, Debbie, thank you so much for that. Wonderful stuff. And that is the show. It's a pleasure to have you both on this afternoon. I really appreciate your time, Stephen uh, and Ella. That's uh, Stephen Franks and uh, Dr. Ella Henry. Yeah, I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45. As always, with us is Liz Owen next with Checkpoint.